The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. Welcome to this week's episode of the Media Institute for Social Change's Nonprofit Hour. I'm Jason Dennington. On this week's Nonprofit Hour program, we'll be speaking to a number of people involved with Portland Nonprofit Theater. Coming up later in the show, Phil Bussey talks to Jonathan Walters, Artistic Director of Hand to Mouth Theater, as well as Erica Lotta and Julie Hammond, two of the key cast members in their current production, Time Affair Hustler, a play based on the Gus Van Sant film, My Own Private Idaho. So that we hope that in addition to viewing the piece, coming to the performance, they're also having a dialogue not only with the person or people they came to the show with, but also with new people they're meeting uh, and in a larger setting. But first, we're rejoined by a guest that we heard on the last Nonprofit Hour show. It was a rebroadcast of an episode that we'd aired in April with Danielle Milan of Milagro Theatre. Recently, Jen Chavez spoke to her to catch up on some of the upcoming events with Milagro Theatre and their community outreach and education programs. We're here in the X-Ray Studios today speaking with Danielle Milan, the artistic director and co-founder of Milagro here in Portland. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us and welcome back to the Nonprofit Hour. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back in the studio. You know, we're wanting to check in with you since the last time you visited X-Ray in mid-spring. You told us all about your offerings then and we want to just get a quick update on what's happening at Milagro now. Um, last time you told us about the work of the Miracle Theater Group, um, the foundation associated with Milagro, particularly about the educational outreach work you're doing there. Um, this fall, we're coming up not only on Hispanic Heritage Month in mid-September, but also, of course, the beginning of the next school year. Um, what can you tell us about plans that you have at Milagro and Miracle Theater Group around um, your role in schools this school year? Well, we have some really great, wonderful bilingual touring programs for youth that go out to the schools, but also schools can come to our theater as well. We have uh, mid-September on starting right around Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from mid-September to mid-October, for those of you who don't know. Uh, We have a two-week festival with a different youth-focused event every single night, ranging from African to uh, um, Japanese drumming and um, puppetry and Mexican dance and Indian dance and traditional bilingual theater. Um, so I'm, I'll start with what we're doing right now. School hasn't even started yet, and we have our new troupe who's just rehearsed and opened a play called Sueños de Football, Dreaming of Soccer. And it's a story about a girl who falls into her video game and ends up in the Mayan underworld and has to play the Mayan game of Pocketok to get back from this sort of what I would call a Mayan Wizard of Oz story and finding her way home and realizing uh, the importance of family and the importance of physical exercise. And that play is performing in some area libraries 
on the 16th on Sunday, if you're an early riser, you'll get to see the show at the Children's Museum right here in Portland. And if you're not an early riser, don't worry, because that play will perform in the evening for families as part of our Luna Nueva Festival. And other events in the Luna Nueva Festival, uh, opening, opening night, a First Nations celebration with Ed Ed, Edmo, and uh, following the second night with a Cuban dance group doing a show called Abeniza. And then this is followed by Sunday night with Nuestro Canto, a bilingual troupe doing Mexican and Mayan and Toltec folk tales through music and dance and storytelling. This is followed by Rockdown doing a bilingual play with puppets and animals where people, tears of joy on the next day. This followed by Taiko drummers the next day. Sueños de football, just to let you know, Wednesday, September 23rd, in case you can't get up early to go to the Children's Museum, but that's okay. I can't either. <laughs> so um, this is followed by a performance of the Oboati Legacy Project and uh, the Aura New Tahitian Dance Troupe on Friday the 25th. This is followed by the Indian Dance Troupe Anatiami um, and um, the Anali School of Dance Saturday, September 26th and Passionate Guitar by Alfredo Murrow on the September 20th. Anyway, there is a full schedule on our website, which is at www.milagro.org for all of the details about all of these events. Excellent. And that's not all. I just have to put in another plug. Oh, go uh, for it. So in addition to our Sueños de Football touring to elementary and middle schools, in September we also have a show for high school and college audiences that will be performing in local schools starting in September, but also national schools. We will be at Northern Virginia Community College the last week in September, and we will be at the University of Notre Dame mid-October for Uh the last week of Hispanic Heritage Month. So we're getting out locally and nationally with bilingual educational theater. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, since we're moving on to October, just actually one last question. Um, beyond your community work, um, I wanted to call attention to an upcoming production by Teatro Milagro, which starts performance on October 15th called uh, Dia de Muertos, La Muerta mm-hmm. Baile, or rather La Muerte Baila, I'm sorry. And with my Obviously, elementary understanding of Spanish, it sounds like it has a seasonally appropriate theme and it involves dance. Um, It was conceived and directed by Rebecca Martinez. Could you give us a little um, preview of what to expect from that production in October? Well, this is really a fantastic homecoming for us. Rebecca Martinez at one point was director of our touring uh, bilingual dance troupe Milagro Bailadores doing Latin American Uh, Pan-American dances from throughout the Americas, and we performed in schools, and we did that for a number of years. And um, with changing times and people moving away, we started at least maintaining that dance element in our annual Dia de los Muertos productions. 
and each year has a slightly different focus. With Rebecca being able to uh, come back to Portland for the fall, she's a very busy national traveling artist based primarily in New York now because people who make their start at Milagro always go on to fame and fortune later <laughs> in life. Um, we're fortunate to have her come back and direct this, write and direct this production, which will be focused on the having a strong ballet folklorico element, that is the, the dance style of Mexico, that is known for the big full dresses and the, what's called zapateado, which is the, the stomping uh, uh, style uh, dances that use uh, boots and strong shoes. Uh, and this is usually followed with a type of music called mariachi. Uh, mm-hmm. These uh, styles of dance hail primarily from Jalisco uh, and, um, and Veracruz. So you'll see uh, the, you know, the white lacy dresses, which are Veracruzano, or the Jalisco-style dresses, uh, which, you know, people are familiar with at the Cinco de Mayo Festival with the, the satin ribbons and the big full skirts in lots of bright colors. And, of course, being Day of the Dead, there will be probably, most likely, some dancing skeletons in there as well. Excellent. Well, you know, thank you for coming by to tell us about these culturally rich offerings in the next few months. Um, Just before I let you go, um, where can you direct our listeners to learn more about the theater and buy tickets if they so wish uh, and so forth? So um, our website's pretty easy to remember, www.milagro.org. That's M-I-L-A-G-R-O dot O-R-G. So don't look for milagro.com. We're not commercial. We're nonprofit. We're <laughs> milagro.org. And if the internet's not your thing, give us a call. We're usually around. Our phone number is 503-236-7253. Fantastic. Well, thanks for checking back in with us after a few months and, and keeping us posted on Milagro Theater and everything that's happening there. I've been speaking today with Danielle Milan. It's artistic director and co-founder. Danielle, thanks so much for joining me back on the Nonprofit Hour. Muchísimas gracias. That was an update from Danielle Milan of Milagro Theater. And special thanks to Jen Chavez for sharing that talk with us. Coming up now, we have a conversation between Phil Bussey and several members of Hand to Mouth Theater. First, we start off with Phil speaking to Jonathan Walters, artistic director of the Hand to Mouth Theater, And later we will be joined in the conversation by Erica Lotta and Julie Hammond, who are key cast members in Hand to Mouth Theater's current production, Time Affair Hustler. Now, Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey, and it's the Nonprofit Hour. Uh, Today we're talking with with a bunch of people. Uh, We're going to start out with with one uh, so that you guys can get familiar with him, and, and then we're going to start adding people into the studio. We're talking with Hand to Mouth, and they have a very cool production coming up. Uh, I'm going to hold that so there's no spoilers yet. Uh, but we're going to start talking with Jonathan Walters, who is the artistic director, uh, longtime artistic director for Hand to Mouth. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be here. Excellent. And and let's talk about uh, there's a lot of theater companies in town. What What is Hand to Mouth's? Uh, role or niche or however you define yourselves. What's your distinguishing feature? There's two things. One is um, 
most theater companies tend to uh, do plays and scripts that have already been written. Sometimes they're even new scripts. Um, but what we do, and the only thing we do, is we develop projects from the ground up. We come up with an idea or a concept or a piece of art we want to uh, react to, and we craft the show over about a year with all the collaborators and all the artists helping make it happen. And then, though our work is new and sort of cutting edge, it's also very approachable to people who don't have a theater background or even an art background. And so we take our shows out and we travel them all over, all over the country. But more recently, in the last years, we've been going to super small towns and colleges with brand new sort of cutting edge work, which is really unusual uh, to be in small town Oregon touring that type of work. Yeah, and and I think uh, your current touring uh, play, uh, Pep Talk. Yep. Uh, that's a great example of that because you guys have been touring that now for about a year and a half. That's right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit, uh, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about what is pep talk. Uh, and then let's talk about where you guys have taken it because you've gone some interesting places with it. Yeah. The, the starting idea, we, we always get together. We have a company of eight members and we, we get together every spring and we, we lock ourselves in a cabin or a house somewhere and, uh, can't unlock the door until we decide what we're going to do next. And um, the idea that was percolating was to take the idea of halftime sports pep talks, none of us being sporty people. <laughs> um, oh, and theater people so often are. <laughs> yeah, right. In the surprise move, uh, sat the bench during my whole high school soccer career. But um, yeah, we we decide, we were really interested in how emotional those halftime pep talks were, particularly in movies and TV. It's always the most emotional part where the coach is saying, I believe in you. You can do this. And he calls them all out by name. You know, your mother doesn't love you, but we love you here. Then they, they have an emotional <laughs> thing for everyone in the in the um, locker room. And we, we thought, what if we could make a pep talk to a group of strangers, which is basically an audience and a theater gathering, um, in which it was very, very personal and very emotional, yet every night we could do it again and again and again with a totally different group of people. That was the challenge. And, of course, it seemed impossible at the time. But we used some techniques where we actually, over the course of the show, kind of live interview people and get people to tell their own stories of things they've overcome. And those are replayed or kind of live re-performed by the actors. And so we actually... Every night the show structure the same, but but the main sort of stories that we tell are actually pulled from the audience in real time. And in making that show, we realized that uh, we could kind of go anywhere because it any community we went to, of course, people would have their own stories and, and they would they could possibly enjoy hearing other people tell about things they overcome or people who inspired them. And that opened the door to two, some touring places that we've never been before. Like prisons. Like Oregon's only women's prison. I, I should add that the cast is all women, and it's women coaches. We, they, they're performing as kind of coaches. And so we got really interested in going to places where sports events happened or where there were lots of people in need of motivation or where there were lots of women. <laughs> and, <laughs> and a women's and, prison <laughs> sort of fit all the bill. Absolutely. The Coffee, Coffee Creek Correctional Facility. Have you been out there? Uh, I have uh, for, for stories in the past. I mean, and it's, yeah, it is a very uh, uh, particular mood. Very interesting. And I think the part the part that I think was most moving for me was I was very it's very intimidating and uh, the, the barbed wire, all of that. And, and there's this dehumanizing effect. And the event 
is all about humanizing people sharing human experiences in a group and we aren't prison wardens we're artists so we had this encounter that was followed by like 40 minutes of of women just sharing their stories afterwards and that was even more emotional maybe than our show kind of opened the door for this moment of people saying you know that, that, that they need more people reminding them that they're human beings and they're going to be back in society and um i think the show put that feeling in the air which was counter is kind of counter to how that institution feels um i mean at least on its surface in my my brief time there i don't know what it's really like to be there yeah, absolutely. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with artistic director for Hand to Mouth, Jonathan Walters, and and talking about uh, one of their current productions, uh, Pep Talk, uh, which, which um, I mean, talk about a captive audience. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Taking it. Uh, and, 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 but how amazing to take a story about motivation and Pep Talks that, that is, is both a, a, a mix of serious and comic uh to to an audience that that maybe um wasn't instantaneously interested in you they didn't choose to buy a ticket and to right. to come to the show um talk about some of and, and you said you've also taken pep talk to some small towns that was really fascinating we we did a tour in um february this year that was lake county and lake county has 7500 people lake county's um sort of in the center south of the state bordering california and it's um, what they call the Oregon Outback there. And the biggest town is 1,500 people, uh, Lakeview. And so we stayed out there at this great residency that I had been to earlier. And um, we, we sort of made that a home base. And the m- most remarkable thing, we, we performed in this town of Paisley. And um, Paisley has, I think, 200 people, but it has a boarding school because um, people live so far away on ranches that the kids, it's, it's a public school, but the kids have to come in on, on Monday and they don't go home till Thursday. And we performed for the town and it was mostly families of 12, 13, 15 people, you know, big groups that were all generational. And that was a totally different thing than we've ever done. And in that setting where people were sharing their stories, they were often talking about each other. They all knew each other. So, you know, a person would get up and you'd, you'd tell the story of someone that inspired you and they'd say, you know, well, it was my mother. And then tell this, tell the story about the thing that she did to inspire you. And, and her mother was sitting you know, in the row behind her. And it was very emotional and more sort of powerful um, because it wasn't exactly a sea of strangers, but it created this forum for people to share their uh, sort of like have a love in almost <laughs> under this weird uh, pep talk setting. I, that That's so fascinating that, that you guys are taking uh, theater uh, and, and it's not just entertainment, but you're truly making it interactive. And you're also you're taking it out places. Was that was that the original mission for Hand to Mouth? Or let's talk about where did Hand to Mouth start and 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 where are you guys going? Uh, I'll go I'll go way back. We we, we just celebrated our 15th anniversary. We just had a party um, a month ago, I think, and we were all I think somewhat surprised to look back and see all the pieces we've done and all all the projects we've done. But um, I I started it 15 years ago coming back from spending some time in Poland. And when I was there, I was working with a theater company and they had a real, I don't know, populist isn't quite the right word. Um, there was a spirit of art going that I'm sure it's strong in most of Europe, but, but in particularly in Eastern Europe, 
it's that um, really good and really sophisticated theater and really interesting work like that that makes you think and makes you feel and, and talks about new ideas isn't only for the highly educated uh, or those very versed in the in the genre. It's it was always priced for everyone to afford. It was really uh, a working class endeavor to go and see really interesting and new theater. And always lots and lots and lots of young people went, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, always lots of high schoolers were there. And it was like very young, fresh, and interesting. And and so I, I brought that idea home and, and wanted, always wanted Hand to Mouth to be uh, approaching people who don't, who are kind of put off by the normal barriers to go and see things. And and sometimes when people say barriers, I think they, they they're talking about money, um, or it's it's uh, it's kind of stuffy. I don't understand it. But I think more is just the habit of going. I think most people don't know that on a Friday night that they could go and sit in this darkened room and have a an experience that would be important to their lives and say something about what they really think or feel. It doesn't really. I think that's the major barrier. I think most people don't think that theater today um, really speaks to them. Uh, th- th- those who don't go. And um, that was always our mission was to kind of counter that and, 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 um, and, and do it in unusual and direct ways. And, and obviously with pep talk, I mean, you are doing that by both by taking it to interesting venues, small towns, uh, prison facilities, uh, as well as drawing out of people's lives. You know, you're, you're, you're exactly doing that. One of the things I think that's interesting about hand to mouth and, Congratulations for making 15 years. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Crystal I, anniversary. I found out it's called. You, you are, you're, you're an artist. You're a theater person. Um, one of the challenges, I think, of, of a nonprofit that is artistically based is that you, want, you just want to present. Yeah. And, and, and all of a sudden, but somebody has to collect the bills. Somebody has yeah. to write grants. When did you guys hit that evolutionary? How did you guys deal with that at first? And, and when did you guys sort of uh, hit a new evolutionary chapter? That's a great question. Uh, I think we dealt with it at first by being stone cold broke uh, for probably the first uh, eight or nine years and everyone being young enough to just work all the time. We were a collective of artists who did all of the administrative work, all the workload, all raised all the money and pretty much didn't get paid for that. We, you know, we pay ourselves for artistic activity, but none of, it was none of our day jobs, uh, even though it felt like it, even though we put 40 or 50 hours in. And then, and then at a certain point, and I don't know about getting older, but maybe also about sustainability, we began to realize that we needed to really have a person um, who was leading the charge and, and sort of overseeing all of that who wasn't one of the ensemble's key artists. And um, that was, that sort of, we woke up to that probably in 2009, but it took us to 2012 to get the money together and to hire our executive director, uh, Jen Midas, who is amazing and has really sort of made this big shift to professionalism that lets our artists be artists. And, and really, you can be a company member now and not have to um, and have a life and, <laughs> and have a kid if you want and, and um, stay sane and really just focus on being an artist with the company. And and has that met uh, bringing in some more grants? I mean, one of the nice things about having a theater nonprofit is you do have a revenue stream in That's terms true. of ticket sales. That's right. Um, but usually that revenue stream is not quite enough to sustain. So for sure, have you guys with with a new executive director has that has that opened up a door of grants and and a new revenue flow? Absolutely, yeah. I'm sure um, those in the nonprofit sector are pretty familiar with the idea that it's sort of like 
you can't get a larger grant till you get the larger grant. There's a strange thing where you have to get to a certain degree of legitimacy and have a certain number of full-time staff before you can get another piece of money. And so that sort of floodgate, uh, knock on wood, uh, opened for us two or three years ago. Floodgate's maybe too strong a word, <laughs> that um, steady trickle. And, and then we've really focused on, um, you know, our supporters because in the end, it's sort of our family of people who come to our shows and um, are interested in us and the communities we connect with. But also even by very small donations or even by their volunteer time or even just by bringing friends to our show, that, that really becomes the base of the pyramid for our survival. This is the Media Institute for Social Changes Nonprofit Hour. I am Phil Bussey. I'm in the studio with uh, Jonathan Walters, the Artistic Director for Hand to Mouth. You guys have a really uh, fun, interesting, exciting project that that is launching, uh, that is is using uh, Gus Van Sant's 1990 film, My Private Idaho, as a jumping off spot. I want to, let's pull a song from that, and then we're going to have... uh, we're going to have Julie Hammond join us in the studio, and she is one of the actresses in in the play, uh, in the presentation, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So why don't you introduce, why don't you uh, cue up the song for us? Okay, great. We're going to um, play a song called In the Fall. This is from the band DeLorean, a um, popular band um, that is no more from Portland. And um, uh, we asked them, we asked to pull music from their catalog and have them re-record it. Uh, to be these small pieces that the actors sing during the course of the show. So they're peppered throughout the show are these pieces of Portland uh, songwriting that are beautiful. And uh, this is one of the pieces that sort of features heavily in there. Fantastic. was a song from DeLorean, popular band, uh, turn of the cent- last century in Portland. <laughs> that makes sense. Oh, <laughs> true though, isn't it? I'm Phil Bussey. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I am in the studio uh, with, with artistic director from Hand to Mouth, Jonathan Walters, and we've just been joined by Julie Hammond, who is one of the company members uh, and is uh, one of the stars of uh, production. Very fascinating, interesting production. Uh, that hand to mouth is is presenting uh, through the course of the summer. Um, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Julie, do you want to explain uh, how this idea came about for 
uh, time of fair hustler. Sure. Yeah. As always, as Jonathan mentioned previously, it's a little convoluted. We lock ourselves in a way in um, some wooded or beach beach cabin area. And we decided that we wanted to make a show that was based on a film. And we weren't sure why. It was a very intuitive feeling. We just thought we wanted to do something with a strong piece of source material. And so we had a a long list of films and then a short list of films. And then we decided on My Own Private Idaho, the Gus Van Sant film. And there was something about it that spoke to us. I think both the impossibility of staging it, taking this movie, which is so known for its um, cuts and these images of the Pacific Northwest, salmon leaping through waters, barns dropping out of the sky as an um, orgasmic representation. And how could we possibly put that on stage? So that was where the genesis for the project came from. And from there, it was a, it's been a deep, long, hard, uh, fascinating haul. And, and My Private Idaho is such a time capsule mm-hmm. of, of a certain, certain Portland and old, older Portland, a little, uh, definitely a grittier Portland. Um, and I, and, and it's, it is fascinating for you guys to present uh, this play, this presentation at this time when Portland is going through some current growing pains. Absolutely. And, and you guys are addressing that really head on both in the content of the presentation and also in, the, in some of the events around it as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. We have a, in addition to the project itself, which is so much, of course, about the themes of the film, love and family, um, searching freedom. There's also in our play really this theme of looking back and memory and not in a nostalgic way, but really... Asking yourself, how much can you really know someone? How can you how much can you really know yourself? How much is this place in which you're living shaping you? How much are you shaping it? And our extracurricular, if I guess I can um, supplemental events are really addressing those problems head on and looking at what does it mean now at this point to live in this city, Portland? And what did this city look like uh, 25 years ago. So one of the events we're holding is a funeral for old Portland. And we've commissioned a series of artists and there'll be other participants as well to give us their memories and give us um, what was it about about this town. We're having a walking tour um, through the Pearl to see what spots and sites have changed. And then there's a panel discussion on being um, queer and homeless in the city and certainly big changes um, as well. But of course, a long way to go. And I think one thing that we're really interested in is that we look back and sometimes we look back and we say, oh, well, when I moved to Portland, my rent was so cheap and I could do anything I wanted. But things were harder, right? You know, there was, you, you, would get, you could get mugged in the middle of the day walking downtown. Um, and again, not to say that things have, you know, are perfect in our city by any means. But it's been really important for us to look and say, okay, this is where we are. Here's what still needs fixing. This is what, where we were. And yes, these things were amazing. But it was also hard and it was gritty, not just in a sexy way, but in a real gritty, hard way. I, I, I did get mugged. I did get, <laughs> I, I did get robbed a, a couple of times. Um, and it's funny to look back at that nostalgically. Uh, so hand to mouth. I mean, why don't you guys just put on a play? Wouldn't that be more simple? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I don't think we could do that if we tried. Yeah. Well, we, this is the closest we probably ever got because... 
there's a funny thread here, which is that um, when Gus made this film, he was one of the first ideas that came into his head was to tell a story of sort of a rich kid, poor kid who are both on the street uh, living uh, homeless, uh, homeless street hustlers. And he got fascinated with the Henry, the four plays of Shakespeare with, with the story of Prince Hal, who, who in his movie and in our play is, is Scott favorite. Instead of the son of the King in the Shakespeare version, he's the son of the mayor and he goes slumming, let's say down with the, with these real people, how they really live. And, um, and so when we started this project, we said, oh, here's our backdoor way where we might even do like classical Shakespeare text. And and inevitably, in any any route that we take to do any sort of straight theater, we can't do it. We have to do it through the door of a 25-year reconsideration of a classic film, which slightly mentioned Shakespeare in its original source. <laughs> and absolutely. And, 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 and with a number of events that are uh, around it, it is, there's a lot... A lot going on with this this event. I wanted to add one thing is is one of most wonderful uh, things for me personally is over the last six to seven months um, in the lead up to this, we interviewed a lot of people who were a either involved in the actual film itself, actors in the film or worked on the film or B were involved in the subculture um, street life, homeless teens, music scene in Portland in that like late 80s, early 90s world and had them really tell their real experiences. And personally, it was really illuminating to hear people describe that time. And then to get them to try to uh, make a big philosophical thinking about then and now and how their lives were different and how it was different. And we took a, a lot of that text and actually fed it into the characters in the in the play. We sort of stole a little bits from it to help make the language that they speak when they're trying to remember the past or when they're remembering details of the past more accurate. And and is that part of Hand to Mouth's uh, mission is to create what's really interactive? Uh, I mean, certainly with, with the other touring play right now, Pep Talk, we were talking about earlier, uh, you're, you're bringing in audience members immediately. It seems like using theater just not as a presentation, but as a dialogue is part of what you guys do. Absolutely. I think we feel that to be able to really make a connection and the magical thing about theater is that it's happening in the moment, right? You might be able to watch a video of play, but it's always bad or almost always bad to watch a video, but to be there in the moment and to be able to have that connection and with pep talk, especially, I mean, so much of the show is really built by the audience. We have a framework and a structure, but they are coming into it. And with this show, it's less about the audience being um, creators in the moments uh, that they're seeing the show, but about engaging them so that we hope that in addition to viewing the piece, coming to the performance, they're also having a dialogue, not only with the person or people they came to the show with, but also with new people they're meeting uh, and in a larger setting that not that we... Of course, we would love to imagine that everyone in Portland is having this big conversation inspired by our play, but at least a few people um, moving a little bit deeper and thinking in some ways that maybe they haven't thought before. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am talking with uh, Hand to Mouth Artistic Director Jonathan Walters and also company member Julie Hammond, who, it, who plays uh, the character of Mike, who was played by River Phoenix. Uh, in my private Idaho, in their new production of Time Affair Hustler. I mean, just even trying to introduce it, I have to go through all these layers. 
It's fantastic. I want to I want to take a little bit different tack, Julian. And how did you get started in acting? So I started, um, I guess, as a little kid. Um, I was probably like an elf in the Montessori school play. It was like an alphabet, and every kid in the class got to be a letter and do a little song and dance. And I think I was E, the elf E. I, I'm not sure. That, that um, would be an important role. It would be an important role. I clearly it had a profound, a profound class. impact <laughs> on me. Um, but I, I always liked saying things out loud, I guess, and standing up in front of other people. Um, so I just, I always did theater as a kid, and then I went off to college, and I thought, oh, well, I'm going to study film, or I'm going to do this other thing, and then sort of right away got sucked deep back into the theater department. And I, when I finished school, I was working as an assistant for an artist, William Popel, and we were talking about what was coming next in my life, and I said, well, I'm not really sure where I'm going to go. I had some different options. And uh, I said, you know, I think I really want to go back to the West Coast, back to the Northwest where I'm from. And he said, well, you should just, you know, move somewhere and meet some weird people and see, see what happens. And so I came to Portland. My grandparents lived here at the time. And my first week I met Jonathan. And 12 years later, we're still making shows (laughs) together. So I guess that worked. And and I, what's Good interesting advice. though, I mean, you could have you could have. Uh, there are theater, other theater groups mm-hmm. that probably don't demand as much um, of a, a breadth of of skills and and uh, job requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, is it's has that ever been frustrating that that you're not just having to be on stage, but you're you know you're sort of having to build the stage, build the audience. And all of those things, or is that exhilarating? I think it's exhilarating. I think sometimes about, okay, well, what would happen if I was doing a regular show? Well, I would show up. All the words I'm going to say have already been decided. Okay, so I don't get to decide that. Probably the director would have been meeting with designers already for months, and most of those decisions would have been made. So unless they're pretty flexible, I probably don't have a lot of um, say or influence there. And depending on the person and just to be honest depending on the rehearsal schedule oftentimes the time frame is so short that there's not room and opportunity to say hey i really want to reconsider how how we're staging this or how we're thinking about this scene in the context of the whole show um so i feel if i were doing that and i think of course acting in traditional plays there's an incredible range of um demand on the artist and on the performer that's required um, for me, though, what I'm really interested in is that idea of being part of the total creation and getting to use not only the side of my brain and my abilities that are about performing, but also that part that says, oh, this word seems funny, or as a dramaturg, this tiny eye, or um, what, if, what if this looked like this, or if this prop felt this certain way. At the same time, it is also nice when we get to that sort of end stage in the process to say, okay, I'm going to take off all those other hats and now just focus on being a performer. But being a creator up to that point, I think is essential for me to be engaged as, a, as an artist. That's Julie Hammond. And I'm also in the studio with uh, Hand to Mouth Artistic Director Jonathan Walters. We are talking about their organization, uh, as well as uh, current uh, presentation, Time Affair Hustler, we're going to have another song from DeLorean, who has helped with uh, the scoring 
for uh, the current presentation. And then we're going to come back uh, with, with Erica Lada, and who is also sort of the other half of the, the central, the centerpiece of the current presentation. Uh, Julie, do you want to, do you want to cue up the song? Sure. Um, if I find love. Yeah. So we're going to hear uh, If I Find Love, which um, in our production, uh, Bob Pigeon does an amazing rendition of. You'll have to come to the theater, though, to hear that. But until then, here's DeLorean with If I Find Love. Fantastic. Well, my heart's been broken, but my heart's still strong. If I find love. If I find love, I wanna let go. See, the trouble is, I've been on both sides. Been a jealous husband and with others' wives. I get no pleasure in pain. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am so pleased to be in the studio today with uh, a few different people that are working, that are part of and working with Hand to Mouth, uh, which has a current production called Time, a Fair Hustler, which is uh, based on riffing off uh, Gus Van Sant's 1990 film, My Private Idaho. Uh, before the music break, we were talking with Julie Hammond, who is a company member of and has been for 12 years of Hand to Mouth. And we are now joined by Erica Lata, who is plays Scott, who in the movie was the son of the mayor and now in the current production uh, plays that role, but as well as plays the current mayor. Is that is that correct, Erica? Yes, yes um, I'm playing the mayor, Scott Favor, looking back uh, 25 years ago about his time and his memories uh, with Mike and uh how that affects him and 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 you sort of see what he's doing now and how he deals with memory and it sort of in a way stirs up many things for him that maybe he doesn't want them to be stirred up <laughs> and just to give uh listeners a, a bit of a touchstone so mike was river phoenix and uh narcleptic uh uh was in search of his mother was part of his his journey that he was going through, uh, Scott was oh, slumming it. Is that right? Is that a fair way of saying it? I guess so. Yeah. And was played good. by uh, Keanu Reeves. That's correct. And for, for each of you, was that, those are both very strong uh, actors and a strong presence. And especially in that movie, uh, uh, was that hard? Is that difficult to, interact with and and to to work with that that presence of Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. Yeah, I think in the beginning that was something that we questioned a lot, you know, 
we are women, we are playing men, which is we're just playing a role. So that's not necessarily a question, but they're very iconic um, characters. So do you try to play River River Phoenix, um, you know, as he was, or do you or do you sort of make it your own and put the movements of of how a man would work, um, move and walk or or just we have just the vocabulary of the movement from the film that we take, we put on our bodies and then speak out of that. And I think that's what we sort of came um, to do. And uh, yeah, and we're still questioning that. I think we're still discovering what that wants to be and how that wants to live on stage. And I think that's the fun part. That's the investigation, the detective work. <laughs> and you're, you're each having to play characters, um, that that are 25 years ago and then current. And- well, Mike does not live in 2015. <laughs> so Mike only exists in 1990. So Erica actually has a much more difficult role than I do. And it, just let me set that up a little bit. So part of the production is is played with flashbacks to the film. Mm-hmm. And then part of it is is contemporary testimony at city council. Exactly. Well, we've been summoned. Um, and it's a strange room where we've been summoned. <laughs> so out of that, we we start to tell the memories of the past, and each um, character in the film, not all of them, obviously, um, the, the actors start to, be, to tell the stories of the past. And out of that, we had to figure out how we were going to be in 2015 and, versus 1990 and how to shift and how you would age uh, some of the, uh, how you would age uh, your your personality would age in 2015. And then that obviously runs, not maybe precisely parallel, but runs uh, in, in, in conjunction with the aging of Portland. Absolutely, yes. yeah. And I think coming back again to that place of looking forward and looking backwards. It's funny, Erica was just mentioning um, earlier today, we were talking about a scene in the film where there are these magazines and um, Keanu Reeves' character and another of the characters are sitting in this lady's house reading magazines. And I was saying, oh, well, I can think of a couple places where I know we can get um, sort of old magazines, thinking about uh, Cameron's books downtown. And then I just had this tiny moment of panic where I was like, is it still there? Is that place still there i haven't been to that street corner in a long time and feeling like oh my gosh this portland is it totally drifting away into upscale donuts and expensive coffee and, and so will the, the the millennial audience members even know what a magazine is right right <laughs> but i was in seattle um in the 1990s these cats are a little younger than me and so i always uh, joke with them when we were in rehearsals that i was at the sinead o'connor concert back in the 90s I'll in seattle it. I was in Seattle also. I was just a little younger. <laughs> a little younger. You were in Seattle, that's true. Um, but Portland, I remember coming through Portland when I was a kid to visit my father in um, uh, Sun River, Oregon. And the train station was was uh, interesting. It was pretty rough. And I remember being schooled about how to navigate through the train station in Portland. I don't know if it's the same. Or the actually, it was the Greyhound bus station. Yeah. No, I think they, they sort of like when you arrive in Hawaii, they give you a lay here. They just they they uh, <laughs> garnish you with with uh, donuts around your neck and cups of coffee. Uh, I This is Phil Bussey. It's the nonprofit hour. I am talking with uh, the two actresses who are at the center of Time Affair Hustler 
Hand to Mouse new production, Julie Hammond and Erica Lata. Erica, I want to talk with you a bit because you are actually, you are uh, coming from New York and you have your own nonprofit there, uh, the, the Wax Factory, correct? Yeah, Wax Factory, yeah, it's a not-for-profit and we started it, um, I would say, yeah, 1998, we started it in uh, New York. And um, we come, the people in the company come from various backgrounds. I'm from dance and visual arts. And um, original members were filmmakers and um, scientists. And we sort of wanted to form a company that was combining all of the elements of theater uh, together, which is very similar to -to hand-to-mouth. And I think that's also why... We uh, finally came together, which is wonderful. But uh, yeah, I'm originally from uh, Seattle, uh, actually grew up on the Lummi Indian Reservation and was raised um, in Sun River, Oregon, and uh, uh, studied um, the Suzuki method of acting in Japan at University of Washington and met Anne Bogart there and uh, just said, oh, okay, I got to go to New York and study with her and uh, do viewpoints. And so I flew to New York, auditioned, and got into Columbia grad school and met the people that I was going to form the company with. And that's how I started and um, been working. Wax Factory is an international company. We work a lot in Europe and um, in Eastern Europe and specifically in France. And so, yes, like hand-to-mouth, uh, we uh, struggle with, um, we do it all as well. We're administrators, we're artists, we're artistic directors. We do sound design, we do costumes, props, and we have our hand on everything. But I don't think we'd want it any other way um, because you, uh, because theater is this beautiful place where um, all the elements, artistic elements, can exist together. And um, um, running a not-for-profit in New York, and I can imagine in Oregon, is, is not simple, it's not easy, and especially with the funding that's... Uh, in um, the United States versus someplace like Europe, for example, different yeah. funding. But I'm I'm, I'm really curious about uh, the comparisons that you've been able to see between uh, running a nonprofit, the Wax Factory in New York City, compared to what you've seen with with hand to mouth here in Portland. Um, I would think, as far as some of the funding, uh, you have a few issues. One, it's it's probably less expensive to run something in Portland. The flip side of that coin is that there's maybe less uh, money available in grants and in patron support. Is that a fair assessment? Well, the, the difference is there's just more people in New York. So you've got, you've got um, the Worcester Group applying for the same job as a, uh, um, excuse me, Worcester Group applying for the same grant as uh, a smaller not-for-profit. They're a very established uh, uh, company. And you have BAM, uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music, also applying for similar grants. So you have that competitive edge always, but there are more grants. And since we are closer to Europe and those companies who do work in Europe and um, kind of do co-productions and collaborations, um, I would say that they have more space in Portland. There's way more space here. You, um, I mean, I've seen so many abandoned buildings here I, I, that I'm like, oh God, if only. <laughs> um, but they have fewer grants to apply here that I noticed. Um, and what about audiences? I mean, is 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 um, obviously hand to mouth very interactive with their audiences, uh, and and has a loyal following that they've built up over fifteen years. Um, general public, though, I mean, one certainly thinks of New York and thinks of theater going. Is is it 
do you see Portland having a built-in audience uh, for for theater? I would say so. I mean, with um, Pika um, and uh, Hand to Mouth and the small um, theaters that um, people have told me about and companies starting to make a name for themselves, and I think Portland is also growing. Uh, but um, I do think that um, the work needs to be supported so that they can tour. I think that's a problem with Portland theater companies is that they need to be funded to be able to present their work in New York on the, or to be able to go to Walker Art Center or, you know, they can go to on the boards, which is great. Maybe they have a relationship with Red Cat, but I think um, uh, Portland companies definitely need to be more on the international scene. Um, also just to, to grow and to get feedback for their work and um, and to 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 have other audiences see work from Portland because it's a shame that they're not performing more in New York, for example. Absolutely. This we're we're talking with Erica Lata, who is uh, performing in Time Affair Hustler, which is a hand to mouth production based on My Private Idaho, and also talking with her uh, co star Julie Hammond. Um, I just to to wrap up today's discussion I'd like to hear a little bit about how much you guys knew about my private Idaho before going into it and and um where what what film would you like to do next as far as is or is it too soon to even be thinking about next productions Wow let's see so I had seen the movie I'm trying I was so funny I've been trying to remember when I saw the movie I did not see the movie when it came out in the theaters um uh I Erica did. Um, I my parents saw it when it came out in the theaters, and uh, my dad is quite fond of telling me what his favorite line was, which is a line that Scott says to Mike up in Seattle about wiping the slugs off your face when you wake up in the morning. Don't forget to wipe the slugs off your face. That was that was a very poignant. Um, but I must. That's, have... that's, that's inter- I'm just going to go tangent yeah. here, but. Why do so many Oregon movies have slugs involved in them or leeches, so if I'm thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> we Fair. just can't get away from it. It's funny, though, because I, you know, growing up outside of Seattle, I feel like I saw and heard and thought about slugs a lot more than I do in Portland. Um, it's just a little moister up there, a little greener. Um, but I hadn't seen the movie in years and years. And then when we as a company were discussing which movie, you know, went back back and watched all these movies. And I was like, oh, wow, this this is striking me in these very different ways. Part of part of that being living in Portland and seeing the movie and recognizing places and spaces and seeing how different they were. And then also just being so struck by the characters and the characterizations and how the how the film is is shot there's some sections that are so stylized and then some that are really naturalistic um so that that was in my experience of coming back to my own private idaho and and erica you did see it in the theater you said yeah i saw it in the theater and it made a strong impression on me um i think I've oh I don't know why but it was also the clouds moving and um sped up and I don't know that stuck with me for so long just the clouds and the house dropping and the sort of uh still photos um that Gus was using in that film it just sort of um I don't know t- years later those images of them maybe not the dialogue as much but the images of of Scott and Mike sort of resonated um and stuck with me 
and I, I saw it, yeah, I saw it up in Seattle and, um, and it's funny as, um, I'm the same age as River. So I think I always, you know, as an actor, you're, I always loved his work and, and, um, went to see all of his films. So, uh, I think, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was great to have seen it in that time, in that era and now doing it again now looking back it's it's kind of odd to to go back and also i don't have that familiar um as julie does with, with portland that relationship with portland is as she does so i have to sort of <laughs> drum it up <laughs> yeah the the image of of mike and scott slumped by thompson's elk mm-hmm. downtown i i i did see it when i i saw the movie when i was in college and i was in small town in vermont and this this gritty urban scene uh seems so far away from where my life was and mm-hmm. it is it's a it's fascinating to watch the movie and then to have 25 years later to revisit it i really encourage people to to check out time of fair fair hustler and i really encourage people to check out hand to mouth and the events that you guys are doing around this it's a wonderful examination of portland where it was uh, where it is and possibly where it's going and, and that idea of relationships and family folded into those discussions. We have one more song we're going to play and it's, and it's again, it's from the band DeLorean, which is a wonderful band uh, from, from 15 years ago. Um, what role do, does the music play in, in the uh, pr- presentation, in the production? So we have this technique in the show, which Erica mentioned briefly, called summoning, where the characters who are um, discussing or are introducing a thought or a memory or a person from their past, suddenly that character they're talking about arrives in space. And in the same way, music is an opportunity for us in our show to summon or to pull out some emotional quality that we can't get to or we don't want to quite get through through dialogue or through um, facial expression, but a way to just kind of cut to the chase and get to those really pure expressions of feeling. Um, and DeLorean's music has been so beautiful. This I think we've all been sort of amazed at the investigative uh, work that Jonathan has done digging through, digging through lyrics to find these lyrics that just seem written exactly for our show um, and for all of these characters and there's so many voices within them so music for us is a way of just really getting right to the point in a way that also allows the audience to feel something instead of having to think it julie hammond erica lotta thank you both for uh for your presentation of time affair hustler and thanks for talking with us today thank you thank you so much How is it We have just known of each other We talk like old friends. And that will be all for this week's episode of the Media Institute's Nonprofit Hour. We'd like to thank our guests for this week, Jonathan Walters, Julie Hammond, and Erica Lotta of Hand to Mouth Theatre, as well as Danielle Milan of Milagro Theatre. 
We'd like to thank our host, Phil Bussey, as well as our special guest this week, Jen Chavez, for her interview with Danielle Milan. The Nonprofit Hour is produced at X-Ray FM by myself, Jason Dennington, for the Media Institute for Social Change. Thank you for listening. And we leave you this week with one final musical piece from Hand to Mouth's current production, Time Affair Hustler. This is Johnny Go Riding by Damien Gerardo. Sunday to watch the sun go down. There's plenty of girls who know you. They've been asking where you've been. Johnny, don't disappoint them. They'd all like to see you again. I'm ready 